Hello and welcome to Frankly Speaking, where we dive deep into regional headlines and speak with leading policymakers and business leaders. I am Katie Jensen. Amidst crumbling ceasefire talks, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has adamantly dismissed calls to halt the military offensive in Gaza, insisting he will continue until the job is done. In this episode of Frankly Speaking, we hear from Israeli columnist Gideon Levy, who's faced criticism for his outspoken opposition against Netanyahu's continued atrocities. We ask if peace is attainable under Israel's current leadership, whether Netanyahu's current stance signals a strategic failure, and question whether Palestinians can do anything to help the Israelis recognize their fragile humanity. Mr. Levy, thank you for joining us on Frankly Speaking. Now, for a long time, you have been critical of a number of Israel's policies, particularly regarding the ongoing occupation of the Palestinian territories. Now, post-October 7, you have continued to criticise Israel regarding the occupation. And, and frankly, it's a disproportionate response to the war in Gaza. Now, this is despite you facing a lot of harsh criticism yourself, a lot of cyberbullying online too. So, frankly speaking, do you ever feel like you are being unpatriotic for criticizing your own country? You know, I don't ask myself this question. I ask myself, do I say what I believe and do I inform my readers what I see? And the answer is in both cases, yes. I say what I think and I inform what I see in all my uh, endless uh, trips to the occupied territories, trying to, you know, whistle in the darkness and telling the Israelis a story that they don't want to hear and a reality which they don't want to know. I, I you know, is it, is it a... a Pleasant, not the question, am I a patriot? I'm very attached to Israel. I was born here. I never thought leaving Israel. I don't know what does it mean being a patriot. I care about Israel, yes, but not only about Israel. Well, you, I read an interesting article you'd written recently in Hires, and I know you were calling for the world to be able to force peace on Israel. But I have to wonder, how does that work in reality? How can the world implement peace on Israel, given Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu is a democratically elected leader who remains in power? He said uh, he has ruled out completely any sign of early election. And meanwhile, we also have an army that, that clearly believes it is doing its duty by protecting its people and releasing hostages. Let me, uh, Katie, correct you slightly. I didn't say to impose peace on Israel. I think that the world should impose ending the occupation on Israel. And here, being a democratic country is questioned at all. So you cannot uh, tell the world, listen, don't interfere, it's our domestic problems, because it's not domestic, it's, ru it's, ruling, it's about ruling another people in quite a brutal way. 
And you cannot say we have our own democracy, don't interfere, because it's not a democracy. Because under the rule of Israel, there are today two peoples equally in their size. One people has all the rights in the world, and the other doesn't have any rights whatsoever, including part of them who don't even carry citizenship. So the only way to change it is only from the outside. It will never change from within Israel. Israelis will not wake up one shining morning after so many years of occupation and say, oh, this occupation is not so nice, let's change it. This will not happen. And it is the duty of the world, like it did with South Africa. By the way, in South Africa, nobody claimed that it's interfering domestic uh, issues or, or interfering the South African democracy because there was no South African democracy. There was a, a democracy for the whites. And here we have a democracy for the Jews. And therefore, it's not only the right of the world to interfere, it is the duty of the world to interfere and the, the sooner the better. Okay, so you say we're not going to see that internal change, that internal pressure come from within. But I think it is noteworthy. We have seen a number of protests in the streets of Israel in recent days and places like Tel Aviv in Jerusalem as well, and potentially the largest protest since the war began protesting against Netanyahu. But, uh, but let's take a look at the international perspective. Let's take a look at some of that international pressure because uh, I found it quite intriguing that despite full support in the early days of the war, Washington, as well as a number of European countries, they are now pressuring Netanyahu's government to agree on a concrete, time-bound and in irreversible path to a Palestinian state. But uh, recently there was a Gallup poll that was conducted in the weeks after October 7. Now, one in four Israeli adults, they currently support the existence of an independent Palestinian state, while uh, most, I think about 65%, they oppose it. Now, that's important because this is almost a complete reversal of where they stood on this issue a decade ago when twice as many Israeli adults supported an independent Palestinian state. So, Mr. Levy, with such a climate, how can any talk or, or any efforts be aimed at a lasting peace actually prevail? First of all, I'm not sure we will benefit a lasting peace. I am calling for justice, not for peace. Peace will be, maybe, peace will be the, 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 the bonus that we will get out of it. But I don't, I'm not sure the two peoples are ready for peace. But there is one people who deserves justice. And this must be pushed by the world. This must be promoted by the world. Now, you say that uh, recently the world is pushing Israel and the United States is pushing Israel. Let me question even this. Yes, there is a lot of talkings. There are a lot of talkings going around, condemnations, resolutions, ruling, ru rules, uh, hearings, many, many things. There's only one thing lacking, and this is actions. This is taking measures. The world never took real measures, and the United States in particular, never took any measures to promote its interests, to promote its ideas, to promote its, its interests. The United States claims that it wants to see this war ended. 
And in the same day, they are supplying Israel with more ammunition and more ammunition and more arms. What should Israel learn out of it? It learned that it can very easily ignore the talkings and stick to its policy because Israel doesn't pay any price for its policy. Well, and I'd like to discuss Washington's differing policies with you in just a moment. But, but first, uh, I know in a number of your columns, you have argued for, for quite some time now, you've been in favour of a one-state solution where Israelis, Arabs, Jews and Muslims all have equal rights, and which would include Palestinians as full citizens of Israel. You've said this state has already existed since the 1967 war. The time has come Come to recognize that as well. The occupation is here to stay, as are the settlements. But, but Mr. Levy, I think most Israelis would say the view is frankly delusional, as it would bring an end to the Jewish majority. So how can you convince them that a one-state solution would be in their best interest, even under the current conditions? It's the beginning of a very long journey. And we have to ask ourselves, what are the possibilities? In my view, the most just solution would have been the two-state solution. Two peoples sharing one piece of land, struggling over it. Let's share it. Very simple. The only problem is that this is too late and it is not achievable anymore. There are 700,000 Jewish settlers in the occupied territories Nobody is going to evacuate them, and there is no viable Palestinian state with 700,000 Jewish settlers, part of them very violent, all of them very ideological. I don't see it happening. There is no room for a Palestinian state. And then we have to ask ourselves, okay, so what do you suggest if not a two-state solution? What is left? Only the one state, and the one state, as you rightly mentioned, is existing now for, for 55 years. The only problem about it is that it's not a democracy. The only thing we have to do now is to change its regime, namely to turn it into a democracy. And yes, surprise, surprise, in a democracy, all inhabitants and all citizens are equal. Yes, there, there is something like this. This is democracy. And I understand the price. I understand the pain about losing a Jewish state and turning into a binational state. But I have to tell my fellow Israelis, you can't have it all. If you wanted the Jewish state, you had to pull out from the occupied territories a long time ago. If you want a democratic state, you should give up the Jewish state because you cannot have it both because there are two peoples here. Either you are an apartheid state or you are a democracy. We don't have a third way right now. So the one state is there. And now let's ask ourselves, do we want it as an apartheid state or do we want it as a democracy? I don't see a third way left, unfortunately so. And the road will be very, very long until we reach it. But we have to start to talk about it. We have to start to dismantle it because today it sounds like a terrible demon. And I think that the present reality is the real demon, is the real nightmare, is the real hell. And anything else will be better. 
Well, it, it feels like neither of them are a real option at the moment. We, we're simply left with a stalemate. I think particularly when we consider Netanyahu's recent comments, he's been talking about continuing the military offensive in Gaza, saying he will continue the war until he gets the job done. And in recent days, we've seen him reject appeals for not invading Rafa. He said... Those telling us not to enter Rafah are essentially saying lose the war. So do, do you think that Israel, despite gaining control of Khan Yunus, northern Gaza, southern Gaza, at a tremendous cost of Palestinian lives, has, has already lost the war? Because Rafah's capture, capture seems likely to deliver neither the remaining hostages nor the dismantling of Hamas. I ask myself a very simple question. Is Israel in a better position today than on the 6th of October? And the answer is very clear. No. Israel is in a much worse condition right now, diplomatically, internationally, economically. The mood in Israel is at its lowest ever. And I'm not sure that even the security of Israel is today more guaranteed than before this war. Now, I I think Israel had a justification to go for this war after this terrible attack on the 7th of October. But someone has not only to ask if you have the right to do so, but is it also clever? Does it serve your interest? Does it promote anything that you want to achieve? And when I look backwards, I see that except of mass killing, really a bloodbath in Gaza, nobody achieved anything out of this war. And I'm afraid that this will be also the final outcome. And therefore, I'm so much in favor to stop it now, because what else will be achieved? Yes, the hostages must be released. And I guess that if Israel will be insisting on it and brave enough, they could have been released a long time ago. And for sure, they can still be released, those who are alive. Crashing Hamas, nobody knows what it is. Having a plan for the day after, nobody has the slightest idea what do you do after you achieve this total victory that Netanyahu is talking about. So where are we heading to? And of course, many critics say that Netanyahu's goal of the continued offensive in Gaza is certainly not to release the hostages, but for total annihilation of the population. Um, I want to talk about the international community's, um, I guess, responsibility in all of this. Uh, earlier, you talked about Washington's different, uh, differing policies. And I think you make a very interesting point there, because uh, I feel in many respects, you know, the Biden administration simply has not matched their lofty words with their actions. We talked about the fact earlier that the US continues to send weapons and shells to Israel and other fronts as well to be able to continue the military offensive there. And then on the flip side, we hear Washington criticize Israel for its over-the-top uh, response and the continued military offensive there. So I have to ask, why, what are the reasons behind that? Is it uh, that Washington's simply concerned about local backlash given it's an election year? Or do you think the Biden administration simply has no sway of the, over the Israeli government? I think it's, it's a very complex issue because first of all, Israel gains a special status in the world. Nevertheless, all the condemnations and the, and the real bad reputation that Israel has now 
still the world is very careful with Israel. Is it because of its history, because of the Jewish history? Is it because of interests? Is it because of the fact that Israel is very efficient in manipulating propaganda and brainwash all over the world, presenting itself always as a victim, the only occupier in history which presents himself as a victim? There are many reasons to this. By the end of the day, we have also to remember that both the Biden administration and many in the West and even in the Arab world would be quite happy to see Hamas being crushed. Also, the sympathy toward the Palestinians is very deep-rooted among the grassroots. But I don't see many leaders really care about the, about the Palestinians. And unfortunately, they fall between the chairs for many years now when many statesmen give their lip service about solidarity with them, but finally almost nobody is doing for them anything and they are left quite alone, especially in last years. So altogether, Israel is still quite strong in the way that it is gaining a very special status. I think that Israel can still do things that very few countries in the world can do, without paying a price. For example, the occupation, for example, the total ignoring all the international resolutions. There are dozens of resolutions by the international community that Israel just ignores. There is the international law that Israel is totally ignoring. Look what happened to Russia after invading Crimea. It took weeks until there were sanctions over Russia. Talking about sanctions over Israel is almost illegitimate in our world. You clearly feel there's a double standard between the Western world's approach to what's happening in, in Russia and Ukraine versus Israel and in Gaza. Absolutely. I think that uh, Israel can do things that other countries can't. I think that on one hand, the world is criticizing Israel much more than any other country. This is true. But on the other hand, the world does not take any measures toward Israel, same measures which were taken toward Russia, toward many other countries who violated the international law. So Israel is really a very, very unique case for the good and for the bad. And of course, we have seen recent action in the ICJ. We have seen South Africa certainly standing up, but you, but you are correct. A number of other Western countries have fallen silent. And as we know, these cases are typically very lengthy and very difficult to enforce. But uh, I want to ask you on a personal note. Uh, obviously, you were born in Israel. You've lived there, I, I believe, for all of your life. So obviously, you know Israelis very well. I, I'd be interested to ask, what is it that Palestinians can do to make the needed change in order for Israelis to recognize their humanity? You see, you cannot have such a brutal occupation, such a terrible attitude toward another people who lives under your control, if you perceive them as human beings and as equal human beings like you. It doesn't go together. You have to dehumanize them in order to be able to live in peace with yourself. Because if they are not really human beings, then there's no question of human rights, of morality, or, or at least this question is less problematic. 
And Israel systematically, from its first day, had dehumanized and demonized the Palestinians in order to maintain the occupation, to maintain even the creation of the state of Israel, which was accompanied with some victims in the other side, as you know. Israel had to answer itself, do we have the right to do what we have done to them? And the answer was always, no, we have the right because they are not exactly like us. Or yes, we have the right because we are the chosen people and we have more rights than others. It is very deep rooted. Many things are under the surface. Not everyone will admit, but by the end of the day, in the basis of all this, there is a lot of racism. And we certainly see that uh, every day on the street. I want to ask you a little bit later about some of the uh, atrocities we've seen shared on social media uh, from the Israeli side as well. But uh, we were talking a, a little bit about the fact uh, that the international community's role in calling uh, for pressure to be put on Israel. We certainly have seen uh, a lot of that happen from the Arab world, particularly Saudi Arabia. They have made uh, a normalization deal uh, with, with Israel being conditional on the establishment of a Palestinian state. Now, uh, Benny Gantz has come out uh, in recent days saying the Saudi peace deal is a top priority. He says it's something that he is personally working on. I have to wonder, do you think that the appeal of a peace deal with Saudi is enough to convince Israel to stop the war, end the occupation, and finally recognize Palestinian statehood? Look, it is a very important element, and I think any prime minister, including Benjamin Netanyahu, would love to have peace with Saudi Arabia, no doubt about it, and will be ha happy to pay some price for it. But I don't see them crossing the Rubicon and paying any price or paying in a price of, of putting an end to the occupation. This will contradict, and I think that all the candidates for being prime ministers in Israel, not only Netanyahu, also in the opposition, would still prefer to maintain the occupation rather than to have normal relationship with an important country like Saudi Arabia. And maybe they also hope that, like in the Abraham Accord, in which they got quite a good deal with some quite interesting and important Arab states, namely the Emirates and Bahrain and Morocco, without changing the policy toward the Palestinians, only by all kinds of lip services for this. So if there will be a moment of truth, and I hope this moment will come, in which an Israeli prime minister will have to decide, and I put it in a very simplified way, ending the occupation or peace with Saudi Arabia, I'm very afraid that all the candidates for prime minister in Israel would say not ending the occupation. We don't want to end the occupation. I want to slightly shift gears here because I'd be interested to understand your thoughts. What do you think of Marwan Bakhuti? Do you think he can provide the needed leadership for Palestinians? Can he be the Palestinian Mandela? And, and if not, who, in your opinion, who is the most likely successor to President Mahmoud Abbas? Look, here I'm not uh, very objective because Mawan Barabuti used to be a very good friend of mine. I allow myself to say so. 
We did many stories together. I traveled with him along the West Bank. I believed in him. I was even once with him in a mission abroad. And I really loved this man. I will say it as simple as this. And I believed at the time that he was the only one who could really unite the Palestinian people, Hamas and Fatah together. I believed also that he is a man of peace. And he, he proved it in many ways. Then came his trial. His involvement, I guess, in, in, a, in a violent uh, resistance that Israelis call terror. And he was sentenced for this endless uh, life sentences. And we didn't hear from him and didn't see him for 20 years. I saw him last time in court. I hope he's still capable of leading the Palestinians. I don't have a better idea. I'm not sure Hamas will accept him today. 20 years ago, yes, I'm not sure today. But I don't have anybody better than him. I still believe in this man. He's genuine. He is very sincere. He's not corrupted, unlikely some others. I'm a great believer of him. And because I believe in him, and because many people believe in him, Israel will never release him. And that's so tragic. Finally, I mentioned earlier about some of the shocking videos we've seen on social media from the Israeli perspective. We've seen some horrific videos coming from Israeli soldiers, Israeli citizens, politicians too. We've seen soldiers laughing as they detonate schools, mosques, uh, children. We've seen pop stars singing songs, calling for the complete uh, destruction of Gaza, calling for ethnic cleansing of all Palestinians. And, you know, I feel it's leaving many people around the world, frankly, bewildered, particularly because it's coming from elected officials and soldiers in uniform. So, Mr. Levy, as an Israeli, how does this make you feel? Would you say these views are reflective of your society? It's a very dark period in Israel, but a very expected one. If you conduct such a brutal occupation over so many years, if you teach your soldiers and your young people, generation after generation, that there is nothing cheaper, and there is nothing cheaper than a life of a Palestinian, and there is nothing cheaper. I can tell you if the Israeli army would have killed so many dogs as it did in Gaza, it would be a huge, huge scandal in Israel, much, much bigger than the killing of 30,000 Palestinians in Gaza, most of them innocent civilians, 70% women and children, and nobody cares in Israel. First of all, let's remember the role of the media, which doesn't cover the suffer of Gaza, systematically not, because they know that the Israelis don't want to see it and don't want to hear about it. And then it's an outcome of decades of brainwash, decades of dehumanization, as I said before, decades of demonization of the Palestinians, Israelis don't meet Palestinians anymore at all because of the barrier of the separation wall. There is almost no contact anymore between the two peoples. So demonization is even more so than dehumanization. We are in a very, very low moment in history. And obviously the racism is now politically correct in Israel. It's enough to have one attack like this terrible attack on the 7th of October to 
put all the e uncorrect, unpolitical correct ideas as politically correct, because after what they have done to us, most of Israelis think we have now the right to do and to say whatever we want because of those horrible things they did. And for most of the Israelis, all the Palestinians take responsibility for the sevens. All of them took part in it. All of them are Hamas and the media and the politicians and the, the new generation, which never met a Palestinian young man or woman, all together creates a very depressing reality in Israel in which you know, you you feel so many times ashamed of being an Israeli, ashamed of being part of all this. But still, I will never leave. And of course, I think, you know, when we see this kind of footage coming from such senior political figures, it's obviously very, very difficult to stop that message spreading so quickly on social media to the younger generations as well. You said the fact this has been taking place for decades, and I feel like this is only going to be ignited even more by these kinds of videos. Mr Levy, thank you for joining us today on Frankly Speaking. We appreciate your insights and we appreciate the time uh, you've taken uh, with us to address these important uh, discussions of what is taking place in Gaza today, particularly from the Israeli perspective. Thank you. Thank you for the excellent questions and thank you for the possibility to talk to you. Thank you very much.